0: Jesus first preached his sermon for kingdom servants to the twelve disciples whom he commissioned for the service of apostleship. However, it should be emphasized that his sermon is not limited to those twelve. Indeed, just as every genuine disciple is a kingdom citizen, so every genuine disciple is a kingdom servant. And while some Teachings here of this sermon may not directly relate to us, such as healing the disabled, casting out demons, and raising the dead. The principle of compassion behind those commands continue to apply. And so the teaching of this sermon applies to every generation of disciples. Applying Jesus' sermon to us today, we can be assured that we have been, as citizens, commissioned to be servants. The commission of kingdom servants involves what? It involves reproducing other disciples who will in turn reproduce more disciples. As Jesus said in the Great Commission, make disciples of all nations. That's not an option. That's a command. And it's not just for the twelve, but for all disciples as demonstrated by Paul in his commission to Timothy in 2 Timothy 2 verse 2. The things which you have heard from me, in the presence of many witnesses, entrust these to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. And so there is a process of one generation teaching the next generation, teach the next, and so on and so forth. Now in order to accomplish this service commission, Jesus furnished us as his servants with five general tasks. Number one, we are to serve where God sends us. Number two, we're to preach the gospel. Number three, we're to perform deeds of compassion. Number four, we're to rely on God's provision. And number five, we're to identify those receptive to the gospel. As we noticed in the text, that when we follow these tasks, we will be assured of reproducing other disciples. But let's clarify. A clarification that must be emphasized. Not everyone will respond positively to the gospel. And because some will reject the message, it is incumbent upon us as servants to identify those receptive to the gospel and place our focus upon them. Focusing on those receptive rather than those who reject will help temper the temptation to become discouraged. Additionally, believers, we ought to remember that discipleship is twofold. There's a twofold aspect to discipleship. On one hand, it involves evangelism. On the other hand, education. On that one hand, preaching the gospel is evangelism. It is showing people their sin and its curse. It is pointing them to the Savior, who can redeem them from the curse of their sin. And to that end, we must remember what our part is in evangelism. Some of you may plant the gospel seed. Others of you may water the gospel seed. But ultimately, it is God, however, who causes the seed to grow. As Paul said, I planted Apollos watered, but God was causing the growth. 1 Corinthians 3 and verse 6. On the other hand, preaching the gospel is education. Jesus initially gave four offices of education to the church. Apostles or missionaries, prophets or itinerant preachers, evangelists or apologists, and pastor-teachers. As Paul explains in Ephesians four twelve, the work, the purpose of these teaching ministries in the church is to equip is for the equipping of the saints for the work of service to the building up of the body of Christ. And I want you to notice something in that verse: the education aspect of discipling is to equip the saint to do what the work of a servant to do the work of service. Disciples are discipled to be servants. And when disciples are discipled to be servants, what happens? The church will grow. The body of Christ will be built up. Now returning to Matthew chapter 10, Jesus warns us here that not only will some reject the gospel message, but even gospel messengers will be rejected. Servants, we will face rejection from at least three sources. We will be rejected by the religious, we may be rejected by rulers, and we may even be rejected by relatives. And so not wanting to leave his servants on a negative note, Jesus sets forth the expectations for kingdom servants in Matthew ten, twenty-four to 42 The expectations for kingdom servants. Now in this final section of this sermon for kingdom servants, Jesus explains why the rejection comes, how not to respond to the rejection, but also that as kingdom servants we will be rewarded for our service. Now there's much to process in this final section. And so it's necessary to split it into two parts. We're going to break the pericope into two parts. Part 1, verses 24 through 31 Part 2, 32 through 42. And the reason I've chosen to break and make the division there is the placement of the two rewards faithful servants can expect. The first reward is found in Matthew 10 and verse 32, and the second reward is found in Matthew 10, 40 to 42. Now, in the verses we're going to consider today, verses 24 to 31 the expectation for kingdom servants, I want you to notice here that Jesus commands His servants three times, Do not fear. Do not fear. In each of the usages of that term fear, phobio, He means do not be anxious. Do not be apprehensive. You see, despite the rejection of the rebellious the rulers and relatives, as believers, as kingdom servants, you and I do not need to be anxious or apprehensive about them. So let's begin in verse 24 to 26. Matthew 10, 24 to 26. And we see here that Matthew 10, 24 to 26, sets forth that kingdom servants should expect persecution, but do not need to fear the persecutors. Expect persecution, but do not fear the persecutors the persecutors. Let's read verse 24 to 26. A disciple is not above their teacher, nor a slave above their master. It is enough for the disciple that he became, or becomes, like his teacher, and the slave like his master. If they have called the head of the house Beelzebul, how much more will they malign the members of his household? Therefore do not fear them. For there is nothing concealed that will not be revealed, or hidden that will not be made known. Again, expect persecution, but do not fear the persecutor. Now in this first pericope, Jesus employs a triad of metaphors to describe the relationship between himself and his followers. Disciple and teacher. Slave and master. Head of the house and household. And remember that triads are a common Jewish rhetorical strategy to establish an argument in order to persuade people to a certain point of view. Jesus is using this triad of metaphors to remind us of our relationship to Him. And it is that relationship that undergirds the reason why as kingdom servants we should expect persecution. Notice Jesus says, A disciple is not above his teacher. Now what is a disciple? A disciple, a tamadim or a mathetes, is one who attaches himself to a teacher, learns their doctrine, and conforms their conduct to the standard of their teacher. Now contextually, the disciple here is a Christ follower, a Christian. And that means as a Christian, as a follower of Christ, we attach ourselves to him, we learn his doctrine, and we conform our conduct to His standard. You'll remember that in Acts eleven twenty six, 26, the disciples were first called Christians in Antioch. A Christian is a disciple, and a disciple is a Christian. There's no such thing as a genuine Christian who is not a disciple. And the teacher is none other than Jesus, the master teacher, the master rabbi. Now notice there the preposition above, whooper means to be superior, to be above another. Disciples are bound to their rabbi, to their teacher, for life and under his authority. And after several years of sitting under a rabbi and learning the law, disciples would be commissioned to teach and be addressed themselves as rabbis. And though the disciple becomes a teacher, he will never be superior to the one who taught him. No follower of Jesus is ever going to be superior to Jesus. He says in Luke 6.40, A pupil is not above his teacher, but everyone after he has been fully trained will be like his teacher. He continues, notice what Jesus says, Nor a slave above his master. Again, the preposition above means superior to another. That is, a slave is not superior to their master. Now, to recap, what is a slave? A slave, a doulas, is one who sets aside all their rights to serve the will of another. The master, the kurios, legally owns the slave or the bondservant, and as such, their entire life is determined and dictated by their lord, by their master, by their Adonai. Now, the term in Greek, kurios, master or lord, is used in the Septuagint to render not only the Hebrew term for Master, Mare, but also for that personal name of God, Yahweh. And so, we see here in the New Testament, the use of kurios, can refer either to someone's Master, or to Yahweh. And it's interesting that when Jesus is referred to as Lord throughout the New Testament, what is it implying? It is implying that he is Yahweh. So when you say the Lord Jesus Christ, literally you are confessing that Jesus Christ is who? He's God, He's Yahweh, Jehovah. But not only is He Yahweh, He is also Master of all who He has purchased with His blood. And as our Master, Jesus determines and dictates our lives. We will never be superior to him. We are duty bound to set aside our rights to serve him as our Lord. Notice what Jesus says. It is not enough for the disciple that he become like his teacher and the slave like his master. Now that Greek term for enough, architas, means satisfactory or acceptable. And what Jesus is saying here in the text is that it is acceptable, it is satisfactory that a disciple would suffer the same fate as his teacher. Or that a servant would suffer the same fate as their master. And regarding suffering the same fate as their teacher and Lord, notice what Jesus says, if they call the head of the house Beelzebul, how much more will they malign the members of the household? Now culturally... A servant, a doulos, was treated as part of the household. The phrase, head of the house, oikodespotis, is one who's been given authority over the household. We'd call this one a steward. And Paul explains in Hebrews 3.6 that Christ was faithful as a son over his house, whose house we are. What we see there is that the house belongs to God the Father. He has placed his son as the head or the steward over that house. Now, believers, we are servants. We are members of that household. And interestingly, during the first century A.D., a slave, a bondservant, could be freed and then adopted into the family of his former master, Uniquely, believer, we have been purchased by Jesus as His servants, and we've been set free from slavery to sin. And because we've been freed from sin, we've now been adopted into God's family, God's household. As Paul explains in Romans 8.15, you have not received a spirit of slavery leading to fear again, but you have received a spirit of adoption as sons, by which we cry out, Abba, Father. You see, believer, we are all servants of Jesus and children of His Father. Note again what Jesus says. They have called the head of His house Beelzebul. Now Beelzebul, or Beelzebub, is a deliberate distortion of the name Beelzebul. Baal Now, Baal was the god of the Philistines, the lord of the flies. Historians have uh, b- believed they've set forth that this lord of the flies deity communicated through the buzzing of a fly and protected his worshippers from plagues associated with flies. Now, just as an aside, if you've ever had a fly buzz in your ear, I don't think any of us have enjoyed that or received any communication from God. Typically, we hear it a buzzing. We're swatting the thing away. Why? Because it's annoying. I don't know what that says about the Philistines, but they worshipped the fly god. So the Israelites, they distorted the name Beelzebul to Beelzebub or Beelzebul, which means god of the dung. They knew where the flies hung out. And they applied the name Beelzebub, not only to the Philistine god, but also to Satan the Lord of Demons. See, it was a common practice of that era, of the nations of that era, to associate the gods of their enemies with Satan, the devil. Now, back in Matthew chapter 9, and verse 34, previous chapter, it says this, "...the Pharisees were saying, He cast out the demons by the rulers of demons. Already they were accusing Jesus of being empowered by Satan." They accused Jesus of exercising demons by the power of Satan. Later, a couple chapters forward, Matthew 12 and verse 24, the Pharisees again said, This man cast out demons only by Beelzebul, the ruler of the demons. Listen, the rejection of Jesus by the religious rulers has already begun. And furthermore, those who are his disciples, those who are his servants, those who are members of his household can expect the same treatment. When Jesus says, how much more? He's implying that cowahomer argument, that argument from the lesser to the greater. These are standard rabbinic arguments that Jesus is employing here. And he's basically saying this, if, an, if individuals will reject, malign, and even persecute the teacher, the master, the steward, they will do the same to the disciples, to the servants, to the members of the household. Indeed, Jesus reveals in John 15 verse 20, A slave is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. Peter later reported in 1 Peter 4.12, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you, which comes upon you for your testing, as though some strange thing was happening to you. Listen, kingdom servants should not be expecting to be treated any differently than their teacher, their master, their steward. Okay? He was rejected, will be rejected. He was despised, will be despised. He ultimately was put to death, we may even face the threat of death. Indeed, there are kingdom servants in parts of the world today that are facing death for the cause of Christ. Kingdom servants should expect persecution. Don't be caught off guard by it. But you do not need to fear your persecutors. Yes, rejection or yes, persecution is going to come, but don't fear fear the people that are persecuting you. Jesus says here, do not fear them, for there is nothing concealed that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. In other words, you do not need to be anxious, you do not need to be apprehensive about those who hate you and seek your harm. Remember the words of Proverbs 29, 25. The fear of man brings a snare. But he who trusts in the Lord will be exalted. When we have anxiety and apprehension over the machinations of evil men, we will be ensnared in a trap. It will prohibit us from accomplishing our God-given duty. Now let me ask a question. How many of you Avoid speaking about Jesus because you fear rejection or ridicule from someone or some group. I'm not asking you to raise your hand, but I'd like you to think about that between you and a holy God. Have you ever avoided speaking about Jesus because you're worried what someone might think or say? Now, you may sit there and try to tell me later, Pastor, I've never held back speaking about Jesus. I say, really? (laughs) Exhibit one, and I only need one. Peter. Best friend, Jesus. Three times, Peter avoided speaking about Jesus and downright denied knowing Jesus. Why? Fearful of rejection and ridicule. Peter denied Jesus not once, but three times. So if Peter can do it, we're certainly quite capable ourselves. Boy, I'll tell you. You know why I'm also thankful for Peter. he got grace he repented he got forgiveness God was gracious and he'll be the same to each and every one of us kingdom servants let's not be anxious let's not be apprehensive of our persecutors why God's going to vindicate us God is going to vindicate us there is nothing concealed or hidden implies there is a coming day when the injustices and the hidden sins of our persecutors will be known First Corinthians 4.5 Paul says wait until the Lord comes who will both bring to light the hidden things in the darkness and disclose the motives the true motives of men's hearts. Indeed at that great white throne the persecutors of God's of Jesus servants will be judged for the things which are written in the book according to their deeds. Revelation 20 and verse 12. Listen the truth is going to be revealed about these individuals and justice will be done. Kingdom servant, I want you to remember Jesus' promise. Matthew chapter 5, verse 10 to 12. Blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. You're blessed when you're persecuted. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil things against you because of me. Now listen, don't pat yourself on the back because you got uh, insulted or persecuted or falsely accused because you brought it on yourself for some stupidity. He says here, you're blessed if those things happen because of his sake, okay? Rejoice and be glad. Your reward in heaven will be great. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you, they'll persecute you. Expect persecution, servant, but don't fear the persecutor. Let's move on to verse 27 and 28. Matthew 10, 27 and 28. Sets forth that kingdom servants should expect a loss of life, but do not need to fear their executioners. We may face a loss of life, but we do not need to fear our executioners. Verse 27. What I tell you in darkness, speak in the light. And what you hear whispered in your ear, proclaim upon the housetops. Do not fear those who will kill the body, but are unable to kill the soul. But rather fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. Again, we can expect a loss of life, but do not need to fear our executioners. See, the wicked are of the mindset that if rejection won't silence us and persecution will not silence the preaching of the gospel, the threat of death will undoubtedly silence it. In Acts twenty three twelve to 13 they tried to silence Paul. When it was day, the Sanhedrin formed a conspiracy and bound themselves under an oath saying, they will not eat nor drink until they've killed Paul. There were more than 40 who formed this plot. And nonetheless, that didn't stop Paul, did it? Nor should it stop us. You see, my friend, despite rejection, persecution, and even loss of life, you and I, servant, are duty-bound to proclaim the gospel and all of Jesus' teachings publicly. Previously in Matthew chapter 5 in verse 14 to 16, Jesus announced, You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor does anyone light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a lampstand, so that it gives light to all that are in the house. Let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. Echoing those same thoughts now, Jesus admonishes us, Do not hide or conceal your light. He says, What I tell you in darkness, speak in the light. What you hear whispered in your ear, proclaim upon the housetops. You see, contrary to your persecutor, who conceals his injustice and hides his sin... We are to make known all that Jesus revealed to us, not hide it. Now the word darkness here, scotia, does not refer to sin in this context. This is not sin he's speaking of. Here he refers to something hidden from public view. Something revealed in private. And parallel to speaking in private, note the next phrase, what you hear whispered in your ear. That was a standard rabbinical form of teaching. A rabbi would stand alongside his disciple and whisper his teachings in his ear. Now, during his earthly ministry, Jesus taught and revealed things to the disciples in private, away from the prying eyes and ears of the religious leaders. And when the disciples asked Jesus, why? Why do you speak in parables? In Matthew thirteen eleven, 11, hear his words. To you, it's been granted to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven. But to them, it has not been granted. You see, while Jesus was with them, he expected them to keep his teachings secret. Following his death and resurrection, however, the disciples would be responsible to speak in the light what they learned in secret, to proclaim upon the housetops what had been whispered in their ears. And here the term light, phos, is used figuratively for speaking openly and publicly. Now, in the ancient Near East, houses were built with flat roofs. And as such, it was a platform from which public announcements could be made and heard by many. For example, the rabbis would stand upon a rooftop and announce the beginning of a feast day. And so the idea of shouting from the rooftop conveys the idea, the sense of announcing something broadly and loudly. Now, kingdom servant, you are to teach all that Jesus Commanded. Matthew 28 20. Nothing is now to be held back. The whole counsel of God's word is to be pronounced beginning with the gospel. Too often, those who teach God's word focus only on their hobby horses, others teach only what is popular and non controversial. My friends, if all scripture is given by inspiration of God, 2 Timothy 3 16 then all scripture must be proclaimed. And that includes the complex parts, the obscure parts, and the controversial parts. Let me give you an illustration. John chapter 3, 16 and 17. Everybody probably knows it by heart. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whoever believes in Him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send His Son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through Him. Now, friends, if you go out and you preach and you teach only verses 16 and 17, i got news for you. You have excluded the complex part of the verse. And the hard part has to be included. Listen to verse 18. He who believes in him is not judged. He who does not believe has been judged already because he does not believe in the name of the only begotten Son of God. Let me explain. If you stop at verse 17, you present a diminished view of God. I'll say it again. Stop at verse 17, you have a diminished view of God. How so? Let me explain. If we stop at verse 17, God judges nobody, but loves and saves everybody who believes. It's verse 18 that gives a much fuller view of God. God does judge, okay? He does judge. He judges all who refuse to believe in the name of the only begotten Son of God. Oh, well, God's judgment's offensive. You better believe it is. Oh, His judgment's a stumbling block to some. Yes, it is. But it also, God's judgment is also the motivation that brings people to repentance and faith. We've got to preach the whole message. And while those who proclaim God's word, while you and I ought not be offensive, if God's word offends, let it offend. Don't you be the offender, but if this offends, let that offend. Do not hide or conceal God's word so that you can get out of or hide from persecution or even death. So the threat of death, Jesus says, do not fear those who kill the body but are unable to kill the soul. Now we need to pause here and develop a biblical theology of death. A biblical theology of death. I don't know if you've thought about a theology of death before or not. We all should because it's all coming. For everybody. Nobody's going to escape it. But death is not the cessation of life. Biblically, death is a separation from something. Death Where separation is the curse of Adam's sin against God. And that curse resulted in three types of death. Spiritual death, physical death, eternal death. Now what is spiritual death? Spiritual death is separation from God. All humanity is spiritually dead. Every one of us is spiritually dead, separated from God because of sin. And so at the time of physical death, what happens? The soul and spirit are separated from the body. The soul and spirit of the regenerated go to heaven. The soul and spirit of the unregenerate are sent to hell. And then we have eternal death, which is also called the second death. This is separation from God forever in the lake of fire. There's coming a day when all those in hell will be resurrected, judged at the great white throne, and condemned to the lake of fire, where they'll be eternally tormented. Jesus says... Do not fear, do not be anxious about your executioners, because the worst they can do is kill your body. Now, I understand that none of us want to be killed. Nobody's signing up for that. But Jesus says the worst they can do is take your life. That's it. And for us as believers, here's what that means. To be absent from the body is to be home with the Lord. Second Corinthians 5.8. Do you believe that? That ought to be a comfort to all when facing death if you're redeemed. You see, these material bodies are but a tent, a crude form, a temporary house for our immaterial soul and spirit. Paul explains in 2 Corinthians 5.1, If this earthly tent, which is our house, is torn down, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal, that is in the heaven. My friends, no human executioner, no demon, Satan himself, can kill your soul. They cannot touch your soul, your spirit, because the power of life and death, eternal death, belongs to God. Instead of being fearful or anxious of those who can bring an end to your physical life, we ought to fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body and hell. This is an illusion here. This declaration is from Deuteronomy thirty-two, thirty-nine. 39. There is no God besides me. It is I who put to death. It is I who give life. Now, notice he says here, fear God. Now, it's the same fear. It's phobio. But here, anytime the word fear is attached to the Lord, it doesn't imply anxiety or apprehension. It implies reverence, awe, worship, and adoration. So the fear of the Lord, the reverence, the awe, the worship, the adoration of the Lord is, etc., etc. In the face of death, we are to reverence and worship God instead of being anxious. We've got a great example in the book of Acts, a man named Stephen. He reverenced God while facing death in the presence of his executioners. While being stoned, Stephen called upon the Lord and said, Acts 7.60, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then falling on his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. Now, I'd like you all to take a moment with me. I want you to consider several facts. One, who did Stephen call on? The Lord. And that word called, apicaleo, means to pray or to worship. He worshiped, he prayed to God. Two, he had a biblical theology of death. Facing physical death, he committed his soul and spirit to who? To the Lord. I'm going to heaven. And three, instead of fearing his executioners, what did he do? He pitied and prayed for their forgiveness. Instead of fearing those who threaten us, we ought to pray for them. And listen, the chief executioner here was none other than Saul. I want you to ponder the implication of Stephen's prayer. His prayer was answered. Not only did God not hold Stephen's murder against Saul, but he forgave Saul... He redeemed Saul, and he appointed Saul to service. Kingdom service. Yeah, even deathbed prayers get answered. Kingdom service, we ought to worship God and reverence God because he is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. I want you to notice a contrast here between the finite man and the infinite God. Humanity can kill the body but not the soul. God destroys both body and soul. The word kill and destroy are two different words. Kill, apokteno, means to bring about physical death. But the word destroy, is means to cause to perish. Now this isn't annihilation. It's a judicial term that means eternal death. Same term we see in John 3.16. Believers will not perish. That is, believers will not suffer eternal death. James says in chapter 4 verse 12 of his epistle, there's only one lawgiver and judge, the one who's able to save and destroy. That term save there, zozo, there's one who gives eternal life for salvation, just as there is one who destroys or who gives out eternal death and damnation. God controls not only our physical life and physical death, he controls our spiritual life and spiritual death. Jesus says that eternal death, damnation of your soul and body will occur in hell. Now we need a little clarification here. The term translated hell here is Gehenna, which refers to the lake of fire. And the lake of fire is not hell. The Greek term Hades is the term for hell. And so to be clear, hell or Hades is the current abode of the unregenerate dead. If you die in sin, you go to hell. Your soul and spirit go into hell, a place of fiery torment. But that's not your final damnation. Revelation twenty fourteen. Death and Hades, death and hell, were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. You see at that great white throne judgment, the soul and spirits of the unregenerate are going to be resurrected, brought up out of hell. Death in Hades, Revelation twenty thirteen, 13 gave up the dead which were in them and they were judged. And that is they were cast in the lake of fire. What is the lake of fire? It's a place of fiery torment. It's a place of outer darkness where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. Matthew 13, 42. But I want you to notice something here. It's not only their immaterial parts not just their soul and spirit that are condemned to the lake of fire but it is their body. Now, the soul... The soul and body is man's immaterial and material parts. What, what he says here, what Jesus says here, is that the unregenerate are going to be resurrected from hell. And at that moment they're resurrected from hell, they're getting new bodies. Well, that's a good thing, right? No. Yes, those bodies will be immortal, but they're going to be designed to withstand eternal torment forever. That's no new body you and I want. The soul and spirit will be enjoined to the new body. And together will be cast into the lake of fire for all eternity. Why fear death? Because we have escaped the second death. And our physical death simply takes us right up to our heavenly home. So while we may expect a loss of life, we don't need to fear it. Now that's not to say all of you are going to face death. But there are indeed believers in parts of the world today. Who are dying for their faith. But servants of God. Whether you're put to death. Or whether you're facing threats of death. Listen what you need to do is reverence God. You need to worship God. And pray for those who threaten. Pray for even those who execute you. I'll give you an illustration. John Knox. John Knox was a stalwart of the faith. He was a leader of the English Reformation. He served God throughout his life as a preacher. He was often persecuted by the Catholic Church. And the English monarchy. He endured various imprisonments, exiles, and threats of death. There's an inscription on John Knox's tomb. You can go to England and see it today. He said, here lies one who feared God so much that he never feared the face of any man. Oh, that that testimony could be said of each and every one of us as a servant of God. Will that be said of you in a future day? Finally, verse 29 to 31. Are not two sparrows sold for a cent? Yet not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. But the very hairs in your head are all numbered. So do not fear. You are more valuable than many sparrows. Matthew ten twenty nine and 31 sets forth that we should expect God's protection. But do not need to fear being worthless. Expect God's protection. Do not fear being worthless. Now that word sent. Are not two sparrows sold for a cent? The Assyrian, the cent, was a brass coin. It was valued at less than, listen, one-sixteenth of a denarius. Now, a denarius was the daily wage for a day labor. Okay? So it was worth less than one-sixteenth of your daily wage. Two sparrows were sold for one-sixteenth of a day's wage, underscores their worth or worthlessness. Nonetheless, though they're not worth much on the market, they were valued by God. Yet not one of them falls to the ground apart from your father. That verb will fall. Pipto means to move in a downward direction. It's a unique term because we're not sure how it should be translated. You can translate it both ways and it'd still be right. You can render it this way. They will not fall to the ground. Or you can render it, they will not hop on the ground. So regardless of how you render that, whether they fall to the ground or hop on the ground, neither can they do either action without God's knowledge. God knows when they fall. God knows when they hop. He's omniscient, folks. How many little birds are there in the world? God knows every detail of every bird. And notice that phrase, apart from your father. Without the involvement or without the will of your father. In other words, when that sparrow falls from the tree, or that sparrow hops on the ground, it does not hop, it does not fall outside of God's will. And Jesus applies God's omniscience to us. The very hairs on your head are all numbered. Now let's talk about the average person. The average person has about 140,000 hairs on their head. Some of us are less than average. Some may be more than average. But generally speaking. But nonetheless, God knows the number of hairs on every one of our heads. And that demonstrates his omniscience. And how much he values you. He values you enough to know how many hairs are on your head. Or not on your head. And furthermore, that all that occurs in this life falls within the scope of God's will, whether it's his permissive or perfect. You see, God's perfect will for your life is his divine plan, and it results in blessing. His permissive will is when he allows you to make choices outside of his perfect will. That results in curses. And I know you're going to say, "Well, Pastor, how do I know God's will?" Listen, the Bible reveals his will. It's right in the beginning of the Bible. His law. (laughs) That's His will. This you should do. This you should not do. And guess what? If you obey His law, you'll be blessed. If you disobey His law, you'll be cursed. So we know God's will. The choice is yours. Do you want to walk in it or not? Understand this. He knows. He knows. And furthermore, that God knows the number of hairs in your head implies that He knows when that number changes. And contrary to what I read in one commentary, Jesus does not promise here no hair loss. Yeah. The stuff people write. Instead, he teaches that as much as the fall of a sparrow is in God's hands, so is the loss of hair in his hands. If it's God's will, it's God's will. Unfortunately, it's easy, though, to become weary of life when serving the king, when facing rejection, persecution, And even death threats. Perhaps even some of you are weary. Maybe you've begun to question your worth. Maybe you've questioned whether it's worth continuing to serve. Undoubtedly, listen, one rejection after the next, after the next would make anyone question whether kingdom service is worthwhile. But to such questions of worth, self-worth, worth of service, Jesus says this, do not fear. Do not be anxious. Do not be apprehensive about your worth to your king. We don't need to fear rejection, because in God's estimation, we are more valuable than many sparrows. We have another of those Calakomer arguments, from the lesser to the greater. If God watches over the sparrows, which the world values as worthless, how much more does he care for those creatures you and I created in his image and likeness? Listen, the world is going to reject you. The world is going to value you as worthless. But you should never, ever question your worth before a holy God. Maybe that's you today. Maybe you're sitting there and you have really questioned, is it worth it? Jesus says it is. It's worth it to him. It's worth it to his Father. What a precious promise we have in Psalm 121 and verse 4. Behold, he who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. God is always watching us, folks. Because he has loved us, he will deliver us. He will set us securely on high because we have known his name. He will call upon us and we will answer, or we will call upon him and he will answer us. He will be with us in a time of trouble. He will rescue us and honor us. Psalm 121 and verse 4. And so to that I say, we do not need to fear slander. We do not need to fear bodily harm. We do not need to fear death. Indeed, truth will come to light. The wicked will be judged. And the Father places a high value upon each and every one of us as His servants. Now, my friends, we may never know in this life why. We may never understand why God permits rejection. We may never understand why He allows persecution, threats, and even death. But we can be confident that all these things are part of his plan, his sovereign plan, and he will deal justly with those who do us evil. So, believer, I charge you, go confidently forth and serve your king. Let's pray. Father God in heaven, Lord God, our King, we petition you in the name of our Savior, Jesus Christ. We praise you, we thank you for redeeming us from slavery to sin. We praise and thank you for adopting us as your sons and daughters. And though your children, we submit to you as your servants of righteousness. Father God, we need you. We face rejection and we're fearful of it. We face persecution, we're fearful of it. We face death or some threat of it and we're fearful of it. Father, protect us. Lord, forgive us when we've remained silent. Forgive us and empower us to proclaim your word boldly and loudly. Keep us as the apple of your eye. And may all praise, may all glory be yours now and forever. Amen.